So I'm Heidi Trost. This is Human Centered Security. This is our third episode. And I have Kalia Young, also known as the Identity Woman. So Kalia is an expert in self-sovereign identity. She's also the co-author of A Comprehensive Guide to Self-Sovereign Identity. And she's the author of Domains of Identity. And I'm I'm super excited to talk to her. Um, I'll kind of let you just kind of dive in, Kalia. If you could if you could give us a little bit of a background on like why you are why you are so focused on identity and why you've been so focused on I think it's been for the past 15 or so years. Yeah. Well, I um got really inspired by a community I was a participant in called Planet Work, which is planet and network mushed together into one word. And they, as a community in the early 2000s, wrote a paper called The Augmented Social Network, Building Identity and Trust into the Next Generation Internet. And they asked themselves the question over an 18-month sort of community think tank, they called the Link Tank, what was a missing piece of infrastructure needed um, for this new global you know, entity called the internet and the web that if it was in if it was created would really empower people to connect with each other better to address the planetary crisis that we have and they they discerned that user centric identity people being on, able to own and control their digital representation of themselves was really a critical component that was missing in the current architectures and they made the argument that if open standards for this weren't created we would end up with large corporate entities and or governments literally owning our digital representations of ourselves. And that's that work led to the formation of Identity Commons. And one of my first jobs was to work with them. And out of that came the Internet Identity Workshop, where for the last 15 years, I and my co-founders have been convening um folks trying to solve this problem because it turns out it's technically quite challenging, but I think we've finally gotten some really cool solutions. Yeah, that's awesome. And there's a lot to unpack there. So I have a few, you know, specific questions and, you know, we're going to try to break it down for for folks who don't even really understand what what decentralized identity is or what self-sovereign identity are. So can we start with like the super philosophical question of what is identity? Yeah. Um, so I think there is this um, perennial question of like, who are we and where do I fit on the planet? And those philosophical questions are a part of the question of what is identity. I think for the definition I often share when I give talks is that identity is socially constructed and contextual, meaning we make it all up, everything, all of it, including the technical things. Um, and but given that, I think, and also that given this audience, I think there's a really important distinction between like the identity of the self and what it means to be human and how we might connect with each other socially and in the analog world and the digital world where there's been a conflation of identifiers, which are numbers or alphanumeric strings that point at people in digital systems and people, right? Like they're different and we're, so, and we have to figure out how we support these digital systems being able to represent us in ways that aren't dehumanizing and exploitive. Yeah. And one of the things 
that I'm hoping you can break down for us, because this actually helped me a lot uh, when I was listening to one of your presentations, is you have this like Venn diagram, and unfortunately, we can't, you know, we're on audio and with no video, but like you have the identity in the one circle, and then you have the personal data in the other circle. Um, can you walk us through yeah. like, what you meant by that? Sure, that um, my, the focus and center of my work is on the identity part of that Venn diagram, but I believe that... Um, people's representations in digital space are inseparable from their their personal data, which is the data that they generate as they navigate digital space. Um, so like my quote unquote identity on a site like Flickr is like my username and potentially like I use my password to authenticate into that system. That's like the identity side of things, but like all the data of like what photos I look at and what photos I upload and what things I friend and like, you know, all that stuff. That's personal data about me that I'm sharing with the site that is connected to this identity that I used to, the identifier I used to log in. But it's different, right? Like it's not just the same, but they're, they're, they're inextricably linked. Like you can't really have a conversation with about personal data if you don't also have some understanding of the identifier and identity systems and vice versa. Well, thank you for breaking that down. So what is decentralized identity? And and I had a little bit of confusion between the difference between decentralized identity and self-sovereign identity. So maybe you can help us differentiate between There are two terms used by different people working on the same thing. Okay. <laughs> I think that I mean, it's important to understand and and that some of the entities working on this are actually themselves sovereigns, as in states, and they take um, umbrage at the use of this word <laughs> in describing a technology that we would like them to adopt. So there is, so, you know, a more neutral word is decentralized. So really, that's that's one of the... That's mostly what's going on. And we had talked about human-centered and, and kind of defining that as uh, before we started recording. Um, but just for our listeners who don't know what human-centered design is, you know, it's looking at, at the human or the humans involved. Um, there's a system around it. So you can't just think about the 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 one human, you know, the one user. There's There are many other players involved. Um, so you have to have the, this like systems thinking um, you want to be solving for the right problem. So one of the examples that I gave to Clea was that, you know, we know that passwords are broken and, you know, they cause a lot of problems. And yet we just kind of, we just add layers to them with multi-factor authentication and, you know, kind of keep solving for a problem that we know, you know, is flawed from the beginning, mm -hmm. um, instead of actually, you know, taking a step back and saying, you know, is there a better way to approach this? Um, so I'm wondering how how you think about, I thought about identity, you know, immediately when I thought about human-centered, but wondering what your take is on that. So the key focus or center of self-sovereign identity is the individual and really um, supporting them having agency and control over very, you know, over how they're interacting with systems. So it really breaks the username and password paradigm completely. Um, if you, because it, it gives people usable PKI, mm -hmm. 
and that stands for public key infrastructure. So this is technology invented 25 years ago that underlies, um, well, not that underlies the core security layers of the internet, like SSL. But up until now, it hasn't been accessible and usable by normal people because it's it's really hard. Mm-hmm. But now that we have computers in our pocket, namely smartphones, we can give people software that is on a device that is just theirs, that uses public key infrastructure, public-private key cryptography to enable them to say, hey, here's my decentralized identifier. Here's the public key associated with it. Let me log in. And you don't even need a username or password because you just are, you're using the decentralized identifier as the identifier and you're using the public key as the, 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 the vehicle to do the authentication where you would, the, the, the site you're logging into would send your digital wallet a challenge asking you to sign it with your private key and send it back to the site. And they're like, great, you are the owner of that public key and this decentralized identifier attached to it. So we'll let you in. And when you come back again, we'll perform the same ritual and we'll know it's you again. So it supports recognition in a new way that gets out of the username and password problem. And and the, the other thing to sort of more fully flesh out this description of decentralized identity and SSI, there's another really critical open standard that goes with decentralized identifier that allows more complexity than proving you own a number, which isn't really useful to helping us navigate the world of banks and schools and hospitals, et cetera, where we need to assert who we are relative to other systems, right? So we mm-hmm. can use the verifiable credential issued to us by any number of institutions to assert information about us that is true for other institutions. For example, I could get a verifiable credential from my university that I graduated from. So I happen to get a master's degree in identity management and security from UT Austin. I can get potentially in the future, get a verifiable credential from them that says, yes, Kalia earned this degree. And then anytime I want to seek employment or just prove to the world like via LinkedIn or something that, yes, indeed, I actually earned this degree, I can share the verifiable credential with whoever I want. And the party looking at that doesn't have to directly communicate it back with the University of Texas at Austin to figure out whether it's true or not. It means that these systems, and this is really critical about what makes decentralized identity decentralized, is not that institutions stop issuing people paper or documents. It's that those institutions are no longer bottlenecks for knowing whether the information is true because you don't phone home to them. Because if you had, as they have built in India, a government-issued identity system or a government run digital identity system, every time you want to use your Adhar number, it phones home to the government to check that the information is true because they also run an authentication service based on your fingerprints or your phone number. So every time you present your 
or, or use that. So it phones home and that's a privacy usability problem. If you don't want the state knowing everywhere, you happen to show your state issued ID to prove information about yourself. For folks who are like, this sounds really complicated. Um, <laughs> why would I want to do this? Like, it, seem, it seems like things kind of work okay now. You know, what do you say to them? Like, why is this important? Well, they don't work okay now. <laughs> um, if you ever have to prove stuff about yourself right now, it all goes back to analog and paper and faxes and scans. And right. there is no... Well, this technology enables it. This enables digitally native documents, quote unquote, to be issued in hopefully a usability paradigm that can work for people with the metaphor of like a digital wallet with digital cards that you digitally present. And you can do things. I mean, so so it's going to rely a lot on really talented professionals taking this this plumbing of PKI, keep these systems and making them usable for normal people. But we're, we're sort of getting running on new digital standards rails for this. And, and it has a lot of promise, um, I think, to shift the whole paradigm about how people interact on the web. And this is what I mean when I talk about like a new layer of the internet is that I believe these innovations around decentralized identity and, you know, at the the center of that being two open standards, the decentralized identifier standard and the verifiable credential standard with associated supporting standards to make it all work, um, are as big a breakthrough as HTML and HTTP, the web protocols, were on top of the internet, which was an earlier set of protocols, right? So we're creating open standards for this so nobody owns it Mm -hmm. because identity is too big to be owned by anybody and maybe you can expand on on what you mean by that what are the implications of us not being in control of our own identities well just look what's happening with facebook i mean just to make the point about that it's too big to be owned by anybody. Do you think that to be a digital person, you should have to have a Facebook account or an account with Amazon or Google? No. So how do we get that? How do we, how do we enable people to be at the locus of their own digital representation of themselves and not people under other institutions, whether it be private namespaces like I just named or public namespaces like the phone number system is a global registry that's run by the International Telecommunications Union and you rent your phone number. You don't own it. It's not yours. Same is true with the domain namespace. It's operated, managed globally by ICANN. It's a really huge namespace, but it's also, if you don't pay rent, it's not yours. Yeah. And I don't know if this is along the same lines, but like I was thinking about your social security number. So it has problems for a few reasons that are slightly different, right? Mm -hmm. 
The problem it has is it was innovated at a time when paper was the dominant technology. So at the time, right. it was secure for the, sure. for the systems it was in. And it's not an endpoint. It's a number that points at you mm-hmm. from the Social, Social Security Administration. But it isn't resolvable. Phone numbers are resolvable. Email addresses are resolvable. You can like get somewhere and there's something on the end of it. A social security number isn't. And it's so therefore you can't authenticate against it because there's nothing to prove, right? So Mm -hmm. the good news is, is that folks in the U.S. government are exploring how to use these new technologies to um, change how we how we connect to the U.S. government and how we prove things about ourselves to the U.S. government in digitally native ways using this technology. And hopefully we'll get away. The other problem is that your social security number became both an identifier and an authenticator. And that's just a disaster, right? Back to it's not an endpoint, so you can't have an authentication factor. So knowing the number became authentication and like that's that's a nightmare. So that's, Yeah. That's that problem. So we talked about this in our initial conversation and kind of like the the shift uh, in mental models in order for this to be successful. Like this is completely foreign to how we're doing things now. Well, I mean, and it's a, a, sh- a shift for both individuals and for businesses and organizations. It is and it isn't. So a lot of how the paper world works now is just like SSI. So it's more like taking the old ways of doing paper, updating them digitally, and then change, like being like those digital, the the way digital happens doesn't, like isn't useful anymore. And partly it was, it was like this mistake, you know, it was when the first usernames and passwords were created, it was because you had mainframe computers who needed to manage access time for the, the researchers in the lab. <laughs> no one imagined everybody on planet Earth or, you know, every, you know, we would all have these email addresses with usernames. Like, what? <laughs> like, so it's partly like they used the last, the, the way you did identity in the last piece of technology. And then that never changed. And there was, this time is really cool because we have technologies we didn't have 10 years ago, right? We all we have computer smartphones, computers in our pocket. We have 25 years of PKI. We've had the emergence of distributed ledger technology which lets you take have a sort of way to to broadcast decentralized identifiers and public keys to anyone else globally and have them be resolvable, which you sort of need for this to work. I mean, you can also do it without that. You can you can piggyback on the existing security infrastructure and, and internet infrastructure with attaching decentralized identifiers to domain names, for example. You know, it's a and we've also had innovations in use, user experience and and how to do all that. So I think and cloud computing is really important to this too. So now that we have these things, we can do. We we've been able to innovate to create this decentralized and self sovereign identity. Yeah, to go back to, and sorry to keep pushing on the mental models piece of it, but I do think it's a shift in the sense that, like, we're we're so used to username and passwords, and like, I think you you said it before, like, we're essentially handing over control to these organizations that we're 
you know, interacting with and doing business with. In the self-sovereign identity model, you know, we're kind of just, we kind of have our identity in our, our pocket, you know, in our phone. And then we're deciding kind of how, you know, what information to give, you know, and when. Um, do you see that as problematic? Yeah, well, there's going to be a whole other set of problems where we've made it, quote unquote, too easy to share information. And should you be sharing that information with this organization just because they asked for it? The good thing is with this technology is you can do mutual authentication. You can actually ask the organization that you're connecting to to prove who they are to you, which you cannot do on the web today. So that's, Mm -hmm. yay, better security. The other thing that's really cool and I think will be transformational for how business works is you can use a you can use there's a protocol called didcom did communications where you can literally create a pairwise you each party in that connection generates a new um pairwise did it's called like so that it's just for that one communication channel and then you can you can use it to communicate so it has a lot, I, I hope, you know, early on, I think we'll see some cool applications where manufacturers of goods that I, that, that individuals purchase, you can, instead of like filling out a warranty card and sending it in or typing it into the internet, you can be like, do I want to have an open communication channel with the company that built my washing machine? Maybe, maybe not, but like, it's a new innovation in terms of secure communication channels between individuals and the companies that they do business with, or perhaps more importantly, the organizations that they're connected to and they want to make a difference in the world. That's why I got involved in all of this. It wasn't so like we'd have cooler commerce. It was because I wanted like humans in their neighborhoods to be more empowered to to connect with each other on their own terms and not have it all be mediated um, by corporations, right? So with this didcom, we can also own our own social graph because it's based on a protocol where we're, my agent can connect directly to your agent and there's no corporation in between us mediating that either through the identifiers or the communication. It's my agent that I own on my phone talking to your agent or potentially they're in the cloud or whatever. And we're using open standards to do it. So it doesn't, you could have a different vendor or different open source implementation of your software. And it talks to mine. We don't have to both be in Facebook or, or WhatsApp or signal or whatever, you know? So I'm really hoping that, um, civil society folks and those who are not interested in innovative business models do get interested in the social and communication functionality that this technology provides to support us um, connecting in new ways and breaking out of corporations owning our social graph, which I think is like the, you know, a massive enclosure of our commons. You know, obviously this is, this would be a different way of doing business and it would uproot you know, quite a few businesses, business models, but there have to be some upsides for businesses. So what would incentivize them? Well, I mean, I, I touched on that a little bit. I think direct communication with um, their 
and secure communication. This is why banks are one of the early adopters of this technology. The credit unions actually in the United mm-hmm. States have jumped full force into implementing this for their um, their member institutions and the customers of those they're actually owners of credit units. They're not just customers being able to have more secure and seamless connections into their call centers. So you get the the model, as I understand it, is you get a a member pass um, app, and and um, it under the hood there is self sovereign identity, and when individuals call the call center to interact about their banking records. That instead of like that K- KBA thing where you're asked about like, you know, you know, which street did you live on three years ago mm-hmm. or whatever, those things, that's right. knowledge-based authentication, that you instead, your app gets a ping and is like, are you on the call center? Like, are you calling the call center? Yep. Okay. That's so much easier than these really um, awful and bad, like, awful in multiple senses, current security paradigms. Yeah, that's super interesting. And obviously, like really important uh, in terms of the show, businesses would be incentivized because like it's actually (laughs) helping in terms of security, uh, you know, reducing fraud, you know, and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's really exciting. And there's a whole set of work going on around like travel and making it faster. There's a World Economic Forum. You can re- read about seamless travel and how these, you know, SSI can enable that potentially. I'm um, I'm working right now. I just um, it's it's new. It's not on the web yet, um, except for the announcement early this week. But um, the COVID credentials initiative was self organized within our community in April. Um, looking at how to use verifiable credentials around this public health crisis that we're facing globally. And so that initiative has just become part of the Linux Foundation Public Health. So now I'm I'm working part-time with the other leaders of that community for expand that um, and figure out those use cases um, and see if we can support, you know, digital vaccination records. So it's really... You know, some people are really freaked out by this, but right now the way I prove I have a vaccination globally is with a little yellow piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And it's required um, to get a yellow fever vaccination to travel to certain countries. And that's the way you prove it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that would be but, very problematic. You know, six months from now, airlines are going to want to know that you're vaccinated before they let you on the plane. Well, how do you prove it to them? A little yellow piece of paper? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe that's not the most secure <laughs> way to do this. Um, you know, the U.S. government is is doing a pilot where they're going to issue digital green cards and accept those digital green cards at TSA checkpoints to get on airplanes. So there's really interesting real world things happening with this technology. Um, And my hope is that some folks other than giant enterprises and governments will get excited about it too and build cool apps for civil society and people in the real world doing other things besides all the current business process stuff we do. We started talking about this, but to kind of circle back, what do you say to folks who are like this? I just don't want to be in charge of all of this. Like, what if I lose my phone? 
you know, all of those questions. Yep. Recovery is hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think we're going to need to really think about normal humans who right now are able to recover by asking for their password from the system again, or at least asking to reset it. So, you know, are we going to have digital fiduciary services? Um, Will existing institutions with whom people have fiduciary duties also take on the responsibility of being key recovery providers? Um, I would trust my lawyer with half my key and my bank with the other half or maybe two or three institutions, like three or four institutions, right? Like there's also, you know, cloud backup and other things. But I think it's one of the, you know, in terms of the usability and the security, it's one of the weak points in what we have. And we really need to figure it out um, before this goes to a mass scale. Those were the ends of my questions. Are there any like parting words? For our audience? Well, I'd love to invite folks to participate in our community. I host the Internet Identity Workshop um, every six months. The next one's actually April 20th to 22nd. And the 33rd one we will be in October, October 12th to 14th. I'm also hosting a conference called the Thoughtful Biometrics Conference at the beginning of February that might be interesting to folks. It's really looking at bringing together biometric scientists, identity management people, and civil society advocates, plus anyone else interested in engaging in the conversation around what are the good and bad uses of biometric technology? How do they work? Expanding who's thinking about this and bringing together the people building it with the people concerned about it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, Just come to my website, identitywoman.net, and you can learn more about what I do and get my Domains of Identity um, outline two-pager. That's the core domains in the book that you mentioned at the beginning and, and see my blog. And also, I should, I'm doing a few things. I also have a podcast called Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity Today. You can find the link on my my website. And I do a weekly newsletter um, with InfoMiner called um, Identisphere, where we go through the week's news in SSI and uh, filter it for you. Awesome. And I listen to Kalia's podcast, and it is awesome. You guys have some really awesome guests. Um, so I, I highly recommend it. Well, thank you, Clea. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Heidi. It was really fun. (laughs)